You're listening to Discriminology, the podcast that aims to dismantle discrimination one discussion at a time. Produced by Launchpad 516 Studios with your host Malik Silau, Steve Kramer, and Sydney Penn. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, whenever you're tuning in. Uh, welcome back to another episode of Discriminology. As always, I'm joined by my amazing co-hosts, Steve and Malik. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about the hiring practices of educators, specifically in Long Island, New York. Um, we'll be discuss- discussing the visible lack of diversity in high school educators in this region, specifically, and um, in the country. And we have a very dope guest that we invited onto today's episode, uh, who is a U.S. history teacher at Roslyn High School. His name is Greg Tull, and he'll be um, on here tonight uh, discussing his experience pursuing the educational profession um, from his time as a student through his professional experience um, now interviewing for positions to be a teacher. Uh, So a little bit about our guest, Greg Tull. Um, He got his bachelor's and master's in history with a concentration in African-American history. Uh, And he's been teaching overall for nine years. Uh, Seven of those years was with the New York City Department of Education. Um, Some other fun facts about Greg. He was a four-year starter for the Queens College men's basketball team. He has 10 years of coaching experience, um, one year as an assistant, assistant coach, and nine years as a head coach. Uh, So he's also a licensed real estate agent, which I thought is really, really cool. So Greg, welcome. Thank you so much for being on today. Uh, We really appreciate you being here. It's a privilege. Pleasure to have you on, Greg. Uh, Malik, always a pleasure, my friend. Steve, you want to kick us off? Yeah, so let's... um... We we wanted to kind of get like a little overview of Greg's experience, not not just as an educator, but as a student, as being an African American man, being educated on the South Shore of Long Island. His experiences in the classroom, his experiences moving from high school to college, and then and then on to his his career in education. So, you know, we kind of wanted to start off just getting a little bit of a background there about the schools that you attended when when you were. Uh, when you were growing up from elementary through high school, representation of, of minorities, how you were treated, the expectations that were given to you. So maybe you could just give us a little idea of what it was like in classes um, and what the kind of expectations were from your teachers and the kind of obstacles that you had faced you know, growing up here on the South Shore. You know, um, you know, you know, going to school in Long Island, it's kind of an interesting thing if you're black, right? I mean, you know, if, if, if you attend a predominantly black school, um, you know, more often than not, you basically feel at ease, right? Uh, in terms of the racial, whatever racial divide they might be, right? Um, where, where I grew up I was in a black community, right? I mean, totally black community, 100% black community. Uh, it just so happened the way that the districts were drawn, um, I guess possibly to you know increase the amount of diversity on uh, Farmingdale where, where where I went to school. Um, 
you know, I, I, they they'd like to call it diversity. There's no question about it. Um, but but kind of that experience as a young black child just certainly they probably wouldn't agree with what their intention was, right? So, you know, you know, case in point, right? Um, I probably say going to school, you know, you know, somewhere between eight, ten, possibly max fourteen percent. African American students um, in the in, in the elementary school where I went, you know, I'd probably say it's much lower than that, right? Um, by the time I got to high school, that's when I actually started to see other black kids that I that I never saw before. Um, there was kind of this weird thing, you know, about half of the black kids who live geographically really, really close to one another um, would go to different elementary schools and then kind of reconvene, you know, in the middle school. So. You know, whatever the case may be, even with the numbers of black students at its absolute peak, somewhere you know, you know somewhere in the secondary levels, there was always the, um, the the situation where I'd be the only black kid in the class. Let's be serious, right? Um, th- this wasn't this wasn't anything. This is something I became totally used to. This is something that um, you know, I'd say it was just. I, I guess it would be a hurdle socially. Um, there's no question about it. Um, educationally, I was pretty rock solid as a student. Um, so I kind of rose to the top, you know, when it came to that. But there was always some sort of strangeness, you know, when it came to kind of, you know, being in class. Whenever we talked about black issues, whenever um, a, uh, for heaven's sakes, you, you read a book like To Kill a Mockingbird, for heaven's sakes, right? And and and, and these deep racial undertones, you know, are 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 prevalent, right? Um, and and I'm the guy that has to answer for all of Black America in class, right? You know, like that, like that type of um, th- that is not uncommon for a young Black student going, you know, to school in a Long Island district that's not predominantly Black, right? Um, so um, the experience, no doubt about it, was incredibly strong educationally, very strong athletically. There's no question about it. Socially, that's where things started to get a little bit dicey. So I guess, you know, to answer your question, I would say that the, the, the experience, no doubt about it, was, was, was great um, growing up. Um, but, um, you know, kind of in hindsight, you kind of see how much work really needs to be done uh, in terms of the representation uh, among the, the, the Black professionals that you see in the building, because that certainly wasn't there in, by any stretch. We pulled some of the stats for Farmingdale High School. This is as of 2019, 2020. The district is 64% white with 1,200 kids, 7% black with 136 kids, 22% Latin or Hispanic, uh, 6% uh, AAPI students, 1% multiracial, and there were like four Native American uh, children, so that it, it ran at 0%. Black people are underrepresented by 7%. The Bureau of Stats for Hispanic um the Hispanic population is 18.5. So there's actually a slight overrepresentation from the high school, but all the other demographics are uh, pretty severely underrepresented. You know, when it comes to, you know, black professionals, you know, again, in, in you know, working in a educational capacity, right? Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, I even ask, I ask a lot of my friends, right? You know, you know, how many black teachers have you had in your, in, in, in your time, in the, your 12 years, possibly 13 years in, in you know, the Farmingdale School District, um, most, most can't say that they've had one. Uh, some can say they've had one, maybe two, right? Um, 
and and, and you know given this given the statistics even you know seven percent again you know definitely wouldn't indicate anything of what we would really refer to as real diversity but um certainly um certainly we're just not getting that among the staff right um and and obviously when, when i speak about this i speak you know specifically about those core teachers right those those math science social studies english language arts you know those 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 main teachers um you know certainly not, not to diminish anything that that other teachers you know are doing out there um no question about it but 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 definitely when it comes to those major academic subject areas um there's a total um misrepresentation um and i think without question it it it, it has this really um you know kind of negative uh, you know effect on 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 the students of the community um as it would in any community um definitely not to single out one district that's not the i mean it's, it's just it's just simply the case in just about every uh school in long island when it comes to a, a small black uh, minority right so so some statistics from uh from the Department of Education, just so everybody can have you know something to hang on to here. So this is from a report that was done titled The State of Racial Diversity in the Educator Workforce. Uh, while students of color are expected to make up 56% of the student by population by 2024, it showed that 82% of public school teachers identified as white. Seven percent identified as black, while fifty again fifty six percent of the uh, student population identified as as students of color. So th- those gaps are incredible, and you know we talked about and when we were planning for this, we you know we had discussions about why is that? How are we how are we trying to drive more people of color into education? What's stopping them? What are the obstacles? I mean, you know, a lot of the things that we've all talked about on our podcast before are the obvious obstacles. But Greg, from your experience, when when you got when you when you made the choice to go to college and enter into education, what what did you see at the college level as far as participation in those in those courses? I had an incredible culture shock um, the minute I walked on to Queens College. Um, you know, it was really, really. Um, interesting, you know, to see what real diversity looked like. I mean, um, and that comes in many forms, right? With with religious diversity, we're talking about um, ethnic, national, um, for heaven's sakes, just the diversity among New Yorkers that that went to Queens College, right? Um, I was really introduced to that, and that really slapped me in the face the minute I walked through the door um, and saw, you know, know, Orthodox Jews sitting among Asians, sitting among African American students sitting among you know you know uh, white kids from 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 Maspeth and you know and, and Glendale right it was really you know interesting to really get so many different perspectives um and and see how you know um I would say deeply embedded into kind of the the ethos of Queens College right like you know of, of, of what really really looked like right so you know I always look back to where I kind of came from like wow they, they really thought that that was diversity you know like that's you know really interesting now you know kind of you know coming into the kind of the, the the teaching world right and seeing who's the who's who of you know prospective teachers you know that I would definitely say that the the students that were you know vying to be you know 
in education certainly did reflect the demographics of the school. So if the demographics of the school, school, um, you know, if, if their diversity is second to none, um, and in our teaching program, the diversity was second to none, you know, um, you would think that in New York City schools, uh, it, to, to some extent, that, that there would be a kind of a, a leveling off in terms of this idea of, of misrepresentation. Um, but that's, it just really, really wasn't the case when I left college and saw what was really out there in the, in the, in the workforce, right? So um, case in point, uh, going to interview um, at an all-Black school in, in, in Jamaica, Queens, um, every member of administration was white. One teacher on the hiring committee was black um, and the rest were white, right? So, and it was actually, actually interesting, you know, and I, and I spoke to you guys about this too, um, um, doing a demo lesson for, 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 for summer school students in Jamaica, Queens, um, definitely not the most desirable thing for any 21-year-old uh, teacher, but um, I'll tell you, walking in there, walking out of it, um, and, and speaking to some of those administrators and, and, and kind of hearing, you know, where they thought they saw me uh, fit into their building, um, and they would ask me, "Hey, have you ever thought about becoming a dean?" Uh, well, you know, I said, "Well, um, no, um, I'm, I'm really, really engaged with history. Um, you know, it's my passion to be a historian, right? Um, uh, keeping kids in line is certainly not my life's passion, right?" But why me, right? Like, why would you approach me with that, right? It's it it goes back to that age old kind of like stereotype about you know, especially black males in education, right? Uh, oh, that guy can keep the kids under control, right? And you know, that's you know, I guess you know, for the the, the coaches and the security guards and the, the the custodians and the people that are helping the building go, uh, you see black men in, in those positions. Um, quite frequently, to be honest with you. Definitely, definitely uh, um, in the DOE where I was and definitely in my current school. But it's those teachers, those black male teachers that you just simply don't see. I mean, they're, they're unicorns, you know? It's, it's, it's I really can't even, you know, even just my, myself, just thinking about, you know, you know fellow um, uh, colleagues that I may have worked with that might have been black males. And I, I mean, that list is really, really, really short. Um, maybe I could probably count them on one hand, you know? Um, so, um, you, you know, you know, getting that first job in the DOE and seeing, you know, how many middle-aged white women were in, in those positions that I'm speaking of, right? Um, no, no, no um, discredit to what they do and who they are. Um, these are some of the most gifted people in all of education, teaching in New York City schools. Um, but um, the, the, again, the lack of representation wasn't there either, right? So, um, so if it wasn't there in the most diverse borough in the world, right, and the most diverse, probably part of Queens, right, um, in, in kind of the Jackson Heights Corona. East Elmhurst area, right? Um, if the diversity among teachers didn't exist there, um, what's what, in, in terms of definitely blacks and black males, you know, in, in those positions, um, then, then what the heck is going out going on out there in Long Island where they're actually making some solid money and have these ultra rich re reputations for for great academic, you know, success and progress, right? 
I think in in both in the suburbs and in, and in urban areas of New York, um, we're seeing some of these same same issues persist. So you know, again, again for our listeners, when we talk about Long Island here, Long Island um, has been given the distinction as being the second most racially segregated county in the United States. That includes all of the United States. That's not a that's not a made up statistic. So we are incredibly racially segregated out here. So we have we have Hispanic districts, we have black districts, we have white districts. And back in the 70s, there were there were busing laws where schools were forced to diversify and and I and I and I know that's one of the reasons why Greg was uh was zoned to the Farmdale School District. Greg, you talked about, you know, your neighbors living across the block being zoned to a to a different district. And having a completely different outcome, maybe you can talk to that just a little bit. Right. Um, you know, uh, I spoke to Malik about this the other day. Um, you know, gr- growing up in Amityville, um, you know, I, I was born in '88. Um, that's definitely right at the the, the the tail end, you know, of the, the 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 major crack epidemic that swept through the country and really hit Long Island, you know, unbelievably hard. Um, Especially in Amityville, where we were talking about some of the, you know, really some of the worst neck of, of the woods when it came to anywhere in, in Nassau or Suffolk County, right? Um, so much so that the park, the, the, the famed Boldermack Park right down the block from where my parents grew up, excuse me, where my parents raised me and where I grew up, um, you know, that was a park I wasn't allowed to play in, you know, and, and like kind of seeing some of the... Um, I, was, I wasn't allowed to go either. <laughs> we, we, we used to have to like go... Sneak right. over there to go play, yeah. Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, I, I did used to, you know, I've been there, been there several times. There's no question about it. Mom never knew, right? Um, but I would go down there because that's, that's where I knew the best run in basketball was. There's no question about she'll it. Know, right? She'll know when this releases. She'll know when this releases. And <laughs> I, I, I hope I hope and pray that she doesn't disown me, right? So anyway, so, uh, so you know, um, I, I only bring up Bolton Mac Park. I only bring up kind of like, you know, the the, the – the, the tail end of the crack epidemic, just to kind of show you um, that there were problems. We had there was some, so there were some major quote unquote urban problems hitting sub- suburbia and, and hitting them hard. Right? Um, there's no question about it that 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 was reflected in in, in the schools. Right? Um, the schools in Amityville. Right? Um, Amityville for for a while had some some issues. Um, I am no expert to speak on on what what the district is is, is going through right now um, under any circumstance whatsoever. But um, definitely at that time, it was it was just simply not a place where my parents were comfortable, you know, sending you know their three sons. Right. So it, geographically speaking, now you know, uh, by, I've, of course, I should have been a student in Amityville High School. There's no there's no doubt about it. I live in North. Uh, my, my parents grew up in. I grew up in North Amityville, right? Um, interestingly enough, if you go right across Great Neck Road to an apartment um, complex that I could probably walk blindfolded to from the front door of my mother's house, um, they all went to Amityville schools. And they all had totally different educational experiences, totally different opportunities when it came to extracurricular activities. Totally different resources and 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 abilities to network and um, different teach and, and, and different types of teachers and so on and so forth. Right, the list goes on and on and on. 
uh, of things that I wouldn't even be well-versed to speak about. Um, so, you know, it's those artificial lines and those, 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 those weird uh, ways to artificially increase diversity that, that kind of, you know, um, it, it really defines whether or not you may make progress in life or whether or not you hit the wall and, and, and hit stagnation, right? Um, there are economic ramifications of these, of these, these guys sitting behind a, this guy sitting at a desk and drawing these lines in some, some office, you know, you know, some town office. Right. Um, you, you know, and, and I say that all the time, you know, so just kind of get, getting the, you know, the ability to, <laughs> Myself, really talking about this, getting exposed for having sex to white people, right? Um, that was just like something you just had to do as a student in Farmingdale, right? And and it, and it definitely, no question about it, socially aided me in the um, in the professional world, in the teaching world, in the world of sports. Um, no question about it. Um, the, the question would be is just where what, what would be the case if, if if I were a student that fell on that other side of of, of Great Neck Road. Um, would I have been? Would I have been blessed? Would I have been able to make certain connections? Would I have had certain resources? Uh, you know, I just think that you know, again, the, the what ifs, the what ifs, you know, are just, um, you know, they're pretty abundant. I just think the whole narrative about that is unfortunate, right? Because, Greg, we live in close proximity originally, so I, I understand the, the district lines and, and how that works, and it kind of reinforces this narrative that as of minority or, or a black student, you can really, you really only have access to a good education if you are allowed into a white space. That there's no way that that could happen at a predominantly black school. You know what I'm saying? And I think that just opens up a whole other can of worms. Right. Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, I'm just fortunate. Um, there's no doubt about it. My parents, my parents are immigrants. My parents are from Panama. Um, they didn't know I mean, they didn't know their ass from their elbow when it came to kind of the, um, the, what went on in Long Island, New York, right? They, I mean, they're from Panama um, and, and moved to Brooklyn when they got here, right? So when they kind of, you know, it was actually interesting, right? They brought me to an Amityville school to register me for school. Um, and they said, sorry, miss, you have to, uh, you're, you're, you're not in our district. Um, your, your child belongs to Farmingdale School District. Um, and, and just that, you know, even, even her lack of knowledge with, with regards to what was going on in Long Island brought her to the front doorsteps of an Amityville school to, to, to get me enrolled. Um, and, uh, and little did you know that that just wasn't the case. So, um, Greg, kind of going back to, um, like jumping back to your experience now going into teaching, um, and, going into like now going into those uh, interviews and hiring practices. Can you talk a little bit about um, maybe the differences that you experienced between um, going to interview, say at the DOE versus interviewing now uh, where you work now at Roslyn high school, like some of the things that you maybe um, experienced like in those hiring specifically in those hiring practices um, with those schools. Breaking into education. Um... You know, I had never been on an interview before in my life, um, you know, for anything really. Um, you know, so the first, the very first interview, you know, I had um, to do like a leave replacement. Um, it was disastrous, right? It was like absolutely disastrous. So even, you know, 
being very comfortable, you know, uh, you know, to use Malik's words, like, you know, in those white spaces and um, totally in the know on how to kind of, you know, move, you know, among, you know, the, the, the majority, right? Um, I was freaking terrified of that thing, man. I'm just like, I'm just like wow. Um, and you know what? Um, you know, I, you know, I just always got the sense, and even you know, in some of their lines of questioning, and I don't know what what they asked anybody else, right? They, they, it, 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 it seemed definitely that um, they were making a concerted effort to see if I had the goods as far as being in the know pedagogically and you know historically, right? Did did I have what it took? Have I acquired all of the major lessons of history um, that are required uh, for a teacher to know before they start teaching kids, right? Um, and, and 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 those would be areas that I thought that I was actually pretty strong at. Um, but then, you know, there would be always those moments where you kind of trip up and you're kind of fumbling and you're like, ah, and then you're trying to weave in this and weave in that, give buzzword one and buzzword two, and now I'm all over the freaking place and it was just a total disaster, right? Um but at the end of the day, I think, you know, when, you know, obviously all, it was all an experience. There's no question about that. Were you a part of a group interview or were you being interviewed solo? Yeah, I was, yeah, was part of a group interview. Um, I was part of a, a group interview. Um, and I, I really thought that I presented myself correctly. I just knew for a fact the jargon, the, the jargon that they, that they really, really, really want to push. Um, for their candidates to be well versed in, just simply wasn't there. Now, because I was I was a step behind uh, in terms of kind of acquiring that jargon, right? Uh, being in the know of these buzzwords and these these these, for lack of better words, these BS things that they want teachers to say on interviews that never get implemented in the classroom whatsoever. But Simply, simple, simple as that. I just wasn't there yet as a professional, right? Um, the one thing that I did have, though, um, was something that I didn't think any candidate had, and that was the a the ability to connect with kids, um, the the ability to connect with minority students, the the ability to connect with kids who have English as a second language. I told you my parents are from Panama; they're bilingual themselves, right? Um, you know. Um, just being the fact that, you know, just being a local kid, I think that that uh, pays major dividends in kind of connecting with kids, both kids, both kids uh, of color and, and kids who are not. Right. Um, it's, it's really more important, especially when you have these young black candidates to get them in the classroom. Right. Uh, give them the ability to shine um, when it comes to the teaching of actual real life children, impressing white men in really fancy principal's offices is not education. Transferable skills, right. right. Or not transferable skills, right? During the interview, did you feel like you had to taper yourself emotionally, code switch, any of those things? Like, did you feel like you were able to be your authentic self? I think you have to, to a, a certain extent, everyone needs, everyone at some point or another code switches, right? Um, in the professional world, there's no question about that. Um, I think that we're, what becomes problematic is the the extent to which Black people are expected to code switch. And that's where I think a lot of the problems lie, right? It's like, you know, we're going to be professional, but that doesn't mean that I need to change my accent, 
my voice, uh, the um, various aspects of your vernacular, right? That are totally and commonly understood, right? Um, but but heaven forbid if you slipped up on that interview with a little tiny bit too black, all of a sudden now the, the expectation is, is that you can't teach children, right? I find that to be very problematic, right? Um, you asked about emotional. I'll give you another, just a just a quick little story um, about a, a, another job that I, you know, interviewed for. So this was another situation that was not too far past my original interview, which I told you was not the best, right? Um, I did another interview for another school that wasn't, um, I wouldn't say, it's, it was, definitely wasn't my greatest interview. There's no question about it. Um, but I did definitely correct some of those mistakes, right? Um, uh, it turned out, it turned out after speaking to a couple of people behind the scenes that the interview wasn't as, as great as I thought. It wasn't as solid as I thought, right? Um, so I took it upon myself to go um, and, and sit down with the person who interviewed me. After I did get the job, it was great. Uh, it was fantastic. But I sat down with the, 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 uh, the man who hired me. I mean, I just wanted to get his perspective about what I would need to do in the event um, I had a tenure tracked full-time position um, that I was a candidate for, what would I need to do on the interview to make sure that I stand out above all? And it was actually really telling and interesting what he said. Um, interestingly enough, this person was a person of color. Um, um, I'll, I'll kind of let you use your imagination, but it was interesting what he said. Um, kind of jarring, but interesting, right? He said, if I could give you one bit of uh, feedback, um, it would be these two items, or two, two pieces of feedback. One would be your passion for teaching shines through in your interview. That is something that you cannot teach. That is something that we find to be a very positive attribute, right? Um, but it's that second part that was actually even more interesting. He said, um, but if I could ask you, and what you would really need to work on is, and I understand you're really passionate, Greg, but you may want to kind of tone it down just a bit and scale it back. Um, and essentially, don't be as excited uh, when you're interviewing. And I said... That's, that's very coded language. Right. I mean, coded for, you know, stop being so black in your interview, right? Exactly. That's kind of, that's kind of how it made me feel, too. Right. It's like, you know, it's like, hey, we get it. You're really excited. You're an excited, young, energetic, young teacher. But tone it down a bit because maybe if you toned it down a bit, you might seem smarter. Maybe you might seem more cultured. Maybe you might seem more white, right? Um, I look at that as one of the more interesting interactions I've ever had with an administrator, considering this person, A, was a person of color. Considering that, and was this an accomplished administrator? This at the time was a go-getting type of administrator, kind of passing through the ranks pretty quickly. So someone that knows how to navigate these spaces with skill. I, I, I would say so. So, you know, like okay. so, my, so my immediate response definitely wasn't anything of true negativity. As a matter of fact, you know, little old me, uh, all naive and wet behind the ears, left that like, all right, I'll try to do that next time, you know, but, but, um, you know, kind of looking back, I'm like, wow, that was, that was freaking racist as hell. Like, holy goodness. Yeah. Like, 
You know, like, wow, that was kind of racist. And, and you know, and, and I don't know. I just really to this day don't know. Like, what is this person trying to protect me, right? Saying, hey, we know you got all the goods, man, but you just Or at least he does. At least right. he knows you know you have right. all the goods. He, maybe he knew it. Maybe he believed in me and didn't want to see some judgmental jerk not giving the opportunities that I deserve for the sole purpose of, oh, maybe I was bouncing up and down in my chair and really too energetic during the interview, right? Uh, or was he one of those, should I say, uh, is he one of those people who can form himself? Could be both. Right. Does he really buy into this BS? Uh, and I don't know. I don't know. It could be both. It could be both. Right. Um, like that's just one of those, you know, really interesting interactions. And, and, you know, I really pride myself as a teacher, man. I mean, I'm like getting up in front of the class. I mean, if you ever seen one of my lessons, I'm like up there sweating, like at some shack in the fourth quarter. Like, you know, like it's like, I'm really like pouring like my heart and soul into some of these lessons. And, um, you know, I, I, I handwrite every lesson, um, I have, I've ever taught. Um, let me rephrase that. So I, I handwrite, I've, I've handwritten every lesson that I currently teach, right? Let's say that, okay? The first year blues, I mean, we've all got that, right? But, um, you know, so I, you know, I put a lot of time and effort and, and just to make things, um, you know, as challenging but manageable for kids as possible. And then my delivery, I think that that just has to be on point every day. I can just imagine, you know, I just remember those days walking into someone's classroom and just know the teacher just didn't have it that day. And just remember how much of a drag it really was. Um, and even if I wasn't interested in that person's lesson for that day, if they brought it to the table, it at least kept me engaged. awake, engaged, right? And like, and I may not have loved it, but I was like, you know what? That teacher poured his heart and soul into it, so I gotta respect it, right? Um, that's kind of where I'm at with my lessons. And 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 for and to, to, for me to sit in an interview and be have this measured monotone approach to getting a job that I'm dying for is just simply not going to happen, right? We'll be right back. This is John and Mark Cronin from John's Crazy Socks. And we're interrupting to say we hope you're enjoying this episode, but please make sure to check out our show, The Spreading Happiness Podcast, another great show produced by Launchpad 516 Studios. New episodes are available every week on all your favorite podcast platforms. Join us on our new podcast as we continue our mission, Spreading Happiness. Thank you, folks. You're listening to Discriminology with your hosts, Malik Silal, Steve Kramer, and Sidney Penn. GTA, I have two follow-up questions for you on that same topic. So the energy level is one aspect, and then kind of just your your, your teaching path. Um, so it, it you're explaining that you had some challenges getting hired. A, I think it would be useful for our listeners to know when and how you eventually got your break or broke into the profession and then on a and then on a separate note 
the energy aspect of it. Minority children and, and black children are tend to be pathologized just for being culturally different. And that includes communication styles, energy styles. Did you see that at all growing up as a student? And then on the opposite side of it, did you have you seen it happen to children, whether it be coaching sports or, or in the classroom? Yeah, you know, um, it's actually interesting, like um, what you said. I'm going to answer that second question um, kind of first. Like, in short, I... I think I experience a little bit more as an adult than I do as a than I did as a kid, to be honest with you. Um, in terms of the way in which uh, I'm perceived, like in terms of the that energy, the, that energy, and 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 the way it's perceived in those white spaces, right? Um, as a kid growing up, it was a little I was self conscious. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be very honest with you. I was tall and skinny and awkward and acne on my face, and I was like, like it was a not a great basketball player my whole life. And just like the overall self-confidence, I tell you, I mean, I wasn't really like, you know, pouting through the day every day. I mean, I had, I had my fun, you know, but I was, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't that guy, you know, like, um, so like there, there was never that perception like, Oh, this guy's bouncing off the wall. He can't control himself. Um, that was just kind of not the kind of the kid I was and kind of given kind of some of those kind of, you know, we talked about those social ob- obstacles and stuff like that. Um, those those weird things where I'm the only black kid or whatever the case may be, or or even if there are a couple black kids, maybe I'm the only smart black kid, and then they tell I'm the white kid. Now. Like all those weird interactions happened, right? Um, and it's not to say like it, 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 that they did it, but like in terms of like that other stuff, I think that I see in the, in a professional space, I see that even probably more, where. Um, you know, I'm looked at a little bit. Um, I don't know. Um, I, I wouldn't say, and I wouldn't say that this is maybe so negatively, right? But you know, the volume of my voice carries through a hallway when I'm teaching a lesson, right? Um, I told you, I stand up, I'm sweating, I'm, I'm, I'm really emphasizing like uh, certain events and certain instances in history, and and when it comes to those really like tough things that I want kids to know that like the, 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 the way I deliver it is just really loud. It could be very obnoxious. Right. Um, and again, I think that the perception kind of comes off as like, Oh, he's a coach. Oh, just a tall, big, loud guy. Ah, uh, he, he really knows how to control the kids. He's just more of a classroom manager, not so much of a true pedagogue, right. Not so much of the intellectual type, but he really knows how to keep, you know, so like, so, so, you know, we spoke about a lot of that stuff. So, I think that kind of that perception affects me more as an adult than more as a kid. Now, Malik, you had a, a first question um, that I that slipped in my mind. I don't know if you can remember. Yeah, no, nah, I got you. It was more so kind of your career path because you were you were bringing the listeners through some of the challenges you had in the hiring process. When and how did you get your your teaching break? Like, what made you break through? Was it was it external help? Was it something you did differently? I'm going to tell you about a really BS story, and you're going to tell me whether or not if you could con- consider this a big break or not. Okay, so getting so getting my first gig right as a hired um, teacher, where I'm the standalone teacher in the front of the class, right? Um, it was in my very first year of teaching. Um, that very same interview I'm telling you about, right, um, was one I didn't do unbelievably amazing on. Uh, I was passed over for that job, and the job was given to. Um, uh, a, a guy, I'd probably say a bit older than I was, um, white guy, okay? 
um, really just um, in terms of that energy, that person did not have it. I mean, like, it was, it was a very nice guy, very nice guy. Um, I did whatever I could to help him. I certainly wasn't trying to sabotage him. I'm not, I mean, I'm not that petty, right? Um, and I did whatever I could to kind of help him along, kind of navigate a building that I was very familiar with. There's no question about it, right? Um, interestingly enough, though, even though I was passed over for that kid, for that guy, right, he couldn't be approved by the board for weeks, okay? The next board meeting was simply like about three weeks to a month um, in the future. So interestingly enough, even though they hired that guy for the position that I vied for and did not get, they still needed a substitute teacher to go in and basically fill this three-week period before that guy gets appointed, okay? So who do they call? They call me, right? So they call me, and obviously, first year, there's absolutely no way I can tell them, no, I don't want this this, this uh, consistent pay as a substitute. Uh, and also, it was, it was a district that I wanted to be a part of. So there was no way I could say no. So I said yes. I had to kind of swallow a little bit of pride. Totally swallow, swallow my pride. Realize that, hey, they thought that this person was better, but I'm, I'm the second choice, but they're giving me a little bit of work. I should be happy. Yeah, well, whatever, right? The guy who was appointed, the guy who was appointed, um, one day knocks on my door while I'm teaching the kids, right? I had no idea who he was. I'd never met him before. And he asked if he could sit in the back of my classroom. And I had no idea who he was, right? After the class, he introduced me. He said, hey, I'm going to be the guy who's going to come in and fill in for you. I go, oh, great. You know, um, pleasure to meet you, man. Um, now, now, I was asked by an administrator if I would be open to allowing this new hire to shadow me in the classroom and provide the bridge that the kids would need to transition properly from me to him. So, so you were good enough to train this individual for the job you weren't good enough to receive. That is correct. Okay. That is correct. So <laughs> I don't mean to laugh because it's nothing, it's not funny. It's just so it's just so ridiculous. I don't I don't really know how else to react. Yeah. It's absolutely dumbfounding and absolutely Right. Um, you know, so this was my quote unquote big break. And now this is why I say that. In those three weeks that I had those kids, let's just say that at the end of it, the kids were eating out of my palms. They had what they felt. They finally got that teacher who was overjoyed to be in the room, who did whatever it took to lighten the mood, make it fun, make it educational. Um it, it was so bad. I mean, I, I, the poor guy that came after me. I mean, I mean, I, I did. I do feel bad to an extent because the kids gave him hell. I mean, let's be honest. They got used to me, you know, like, and, and I was really a young 22-year-old guy, you know, teaching 11th graders. This is something that they were really excited about. Um, and then they kind of had it ripped away from them um, for, for this guy who I believe, I don't, know, I don't even think he's in, in, in the world of education anymore, right? So, like, that, that little story just shows you, like, um, had I just been given the chance, had I had I had the opportunity to um, interact with kids, um, to interact with parents, um, you know, I think it, it's those additions to the hiring process that are really important. Um, 
But one of the classes, one of the questions I asked, what was the what was the last book that you read? Like, okay, um, I I know that that question might be something to stir some conversation, but it's definitely not more important than how well I think I can engage parents into the educational process, right? I really don't think that the question about uh, who's my favorite U.S. president, I don't think that that's going to be as stimulating as what I personally can do educationally for students with disabilities, students that are learning uh, um, English as their second language, and minority students who are struggling and probably in the bottom third of academic success, right? But those questions weren't asked. The other ones were, right? And even beyond that, just, just going back to the demographics of the classroom, the classroom that was eating out of your hand had to be predominantly white if we're referring to uh, Farmingdale School District. So you were just universally able to connect with kids, period. Right, right. Especially, you know, local kids from Farmingdale. I mean, you know, as a growing up in Farmingdale, you guys know, like, you know, there are only certain things about Farmingdale that only a Farmingdale person would understand. And probably we can say we can say that about a lot of towns. Right. Um, but when the person standing up in front of from the classroom is one of you, he's, he is one of you. Right. Um, there is just a added level of could be comfort, could be as basic as just comfort for a kid to get them learning. Right. Um, right. You just can't teach that crap. It's, it's as simple as that. No, I you know, full disclosure for our listening audience, Greg, Greg was my uh, student teacher at Farmingdale. So a lot of this was happening, you know, kind of concurrently there. And without w- without exaggerating, without hyperbole, I've had, I've had dozens and dozens of student teachers over my career. Head and shoulders, Greg, was the best. I mean, there's no... There's no if ands or buts. If any of my former student teachers out there are listening, you know it's true. You guys weren't that good, but <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but but the kids, the way they responded to Greg, and the way they, the way they acted for him, and the way they responded to him. You know, I'm not. T- we're not talking about the honors kids, the AP kids. We're talking about the kids. You know, the, the kids who always get called the regular kids, you know, you're in R classes, R means regular, you know, it doesn't mean regents, you know, it means regular. And those kids connected with Greg in a way, and every teacher on staff that knew him advocated so vehemently for Greg to get this job that we were told by administration, he just, you know, he just didn't speak right in his interview. You know, that was the excuse that I was given by a head administrator. Which of course, which of course is is coded dog whistle language. You know, of course he was he was way too black, way too black, way too black for that for that district at the time, right? You know, this is it's going back 10, 10, 12 years, right? So, you know, th- those kinds of things are there. Now, this this would be a great time to segue into uh, something a, a point that you brought up, Greg, when we were planning this, which I thought was a was just a fantastic point. You talked about walking into the room and you see a hundred resumes on the table, and you know this is the hiring practice on Long Island. We've got a hundred resumes. We're going to pick the best people, the best resume, the best person should get the job. But of course, as as everybody listening to this knows, you know the the systemic racism that exists. What percentage of those resumes to begin with are going to be of black people? 
what percentage of those resumes to begin with are going to be minorities because you got to know somebody to get your resume into that stack. If you don't know somebody, your resume is not getting passed on. The only way you get jobs and the only way you get hired out here on Long Island is if somebody gets your resume put in, right? So I don't know, maybe, maybe you could, maybe you could, you know, kind of, kind of dig into that a little bit, Greg, because what you were saying the other day was really good. Yeah. This is like part of the problem. You know, it's like, you know, this, I bring up this, this, this almost to give you a visual, right. Of this stack of a hundred resumes, right. Um, in a perfect world, um, the best candidate within that stack of resumes should be chosen in the most indiscriminate way in a perfect world, right? You sift through all of them. You see the person who has the best credentials, best experience, oh, sorry, the most experience, so on and so forth. And from that hundred, you, you narrow it down to there, narrow it down to there. And then you come up with the two or the three candidates you think are the best, right? Um, or the five, whatever. And in an indiscriminate way, right? You're literally just looking at black text on white paper, right? No pun intended, okay? Now, that's incredibly problematic, right? When we talk about the world of education. Now, if this were a Fortune 500 company or the only focus was to uh, increase monetary gain or what have you, so be it. I mean, whatever. I mean, I think that that would be unbelievably problematic to do it that way, too, even in the corporate world or in any profession. It is what it is, right? But in the world of education, where representation probably matters more in our field than probably any other line of work, you cannot have an indiscriminate mode or, 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 or method of screening people um, for a job that you know where that person's race does matter in the educational experiences of young people that are the future of this country. My race matters to my kids. Steve, your race matters. Your religion matters to your, to your kids, right? It would be foolish to say that it doesn't, right? Um, so back to the 100 resumes, if you're going to indiscriminately select the best, in, in essence, you are discriminating against minority groups, right? So as convoluted and as strange as that sounds, in a perfect world, you want that indiscriminate way to choose candidates. But in the world we live in, that is simply not enough. It is lazy. It is racist, okay? And it is simply, it is a major hindrance on the growth of young Black America. Simple as that. So, G. So, if I could, if I could add something to that, I, I heard we all went out once. Well, Malik, I heard you first, so we'll we'll go with you, and then we'll start. I'll call on you. Go ahead, speak. I, I feel like I feel like I'm in class again, but just just to piggyback off that, um, you know, obviously just. My, my line of work, I'm kind of tethered to the whole diversity hiring practice type work, right? And what comes up, like similar language comes up where, oh, we want to increase diversity. We want to have representation in these positions. And the rebuttal is, well, we still want to make sure we have the best candidate, right? And that sentiment 
in and of itself is racist because it assumes that the best candidate could never be a minority person, right? Like that's, you're just assuming that that like, oh, we're going to have to sacrifice on competency or ability or proficiency to make a diverse hire, right? And I think you're a gleaming example that that's not the case. Not only were you a diverse hire and, and add value in that regard to representation, but to Mr. Kramer's point, you were, you were by far the most qualified proficient candidate. So I think, I, I think overall, just in the inclusion space and in the hiring space for when looking for underrepresented candidates, like the logic that you have to sacrifice competency to make these hires is, is blatantly racist and just false. What you really have to do is expand your pool. The reason why you're not getting enough applicants right. is because your your recruiting pool is from the North Shore to the South Shore to just make Long Island as an example. When really you should you could right. be recruiting from historic black colleges, different teacher associations. Like there's a there's a lot of creative ways that you could you could garner the applicants. That's the first step, and then the second step of it is when you do get an applicant vet your racist hiring practices and actually hire the the underrepresented candidates that are more than qualified for the positions. I I don't know. I I just think the the onus is always removed from the either the whatever hiring agency it is, whether it's in corporate or or in the teaching profession. And it a lot of it does fall on them. Like yes, there's systemic issues, there's there's this myth of meritocracy that that, that a lot of people buy into, but it it doesn't remove the ownership of the problem and issue from administrations, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, you're a hundred percent right. I mean, it's it. They need to just stop being lazy. Like, I mean, like I, I don't know what other way to say it. It's like they have got to exhaust because of how important this is to our kids. They've got to exhaust every single option there is to create a pipeline between young black professionals and education. Could it be HBCUs and our federal department of education? Could that, could, could that, uh, could, could, could some degree of symmetry between these two major organizations help foster an environment where, where, where African-American kids feel supported in the classroom, whether, no matter what district they go, go to. Right. Um, I just, I just don't see enough going on. Um, and I think that, um, you know, with the, you know, the George Floyd, you know, protests, you know, the, the, the tragic death of Mr. Floyd. And um, I mean, and, and, and it's, it's almost disgraceful to only bring up, you know, you know, George Floyd, we can go on and on um, about the people who've been victimized, you know, by some of the racial disparities in this country. Right. Um, but you know, it, it's like this was like, un, un, unfortunately, like George Floyd's death was the this watershed moment in education as well, too, where 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 white administrators are looking themselves in the mirror very deeply now, and now starting to a maybe they're starting to care or they're either starting to panic. I, I think we all know what what I really think. Uh, they they they're, they're certainly right. Like, uh, let, long story short, they are. Um, now seemingly invested in this movement uh, for diversity among teachers. Um, and it's, 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 it's sad. It's sad to say that it took, um, that it took for, for George Floyd to pass and to see the national uproar 
that coincided with it to even have this be on the tip of the tongue of some of the highest paid state employees in the freaking country, you know, uh, we got to do a little bit more. So to, to piggyback off your, you, what you guys are talking about there, there, there are real life examples of what you guys are talking about. There are some successful programs in the United States that have been implemented. Uh, Boston public schools has one of the most successful ones. So, um, just to read from, from the, uh, this is from this, the same report that I was reading before from, but, um, in 2015-2016, in Boston's, Boston Public Schools, 37% of the teachers are teachers of color, 37. And 25% of new teachers hired in 2015 were, were Black. And why is this? Because Boston Public Schools instituted a program called High School to Teacher Program. Uh, the program identifies city students in high school who would make great teachers. The program then provides the students with mentors, gives them college prep courses, half their tuition, and if they're successful, teaching jobs. 87% of the participants are Black or Latino. So, you know, here's, here's Boston. And, you know, we here, we here in New York always, always talk about how racist Boston is because it is pretty, it's a pretty racist town. But, I didn't want to say it, but no, I'll say it because, you know, it's the Red Sox and whatever. But... <laughs> But here is a gleaming example of, of really Boston's a liberal town. I mean, it's, it's Boston, for God's sakes, you know, uh, where, where you have politicians, you have school leaders, local leaders who came together and developed this program and are finding tremendous success. And to me, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot that they have really had to invest in there to get these kids identified, because how hard is it to identify a strong student? I know my strong students pretty much the second day of class. How hard is it to then convince some of them that teaching is a profession that that's going to benefit and then and then mentor them, right? It's it, it it's an it's an old trope. It's an old thing that we we've, we've been doing. Find kids, mentor them, steer them in the right direction. That's not a hard thing to do. But here you have Boston that that was tremendously and it's still tremendously successful in it. Other big city schools can do it very easily, especially a system like New York City where they have specialized high schools. You know, they could easily have an education high school. They can easily do, you know, shift some resources around and, and put some things towards that. Would you ever get that kind of political capital or political will out here on Long Island? It, it would be much more difficult to get that. But these are the kinds of grassroots things that we can start demanding. You know, we, we always like to do our call to action here in, uh, in, in our podcast. And one of the things that our community can do is to start demanding this from, from our schools, have more high school to college programs, have more mentorships in high school, have more steering in high school. Um, and, and then get the community behind it. You know, that's it's not a whole lot that would have to move to make that kind of thing happen. Yeah, Steve, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Um, these are, Literally, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, these are small steps that of, of, of a much more massive movement that can happen. And, you know, and, and we can, if we, we can double and triple and quadruple this, you know, this is, you know, this is where, you know, this is going to pay major dividends. Maybe, maybe not, obviously, you know, for, for the, myself and Malik, but, 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 but what about What about our kids? Right. You know, so, um, you know, that's it. That's the, that's, that's the start. And, 
you know, um, I, I'm glad you brought those statistics to the table, right? Because um, that that does give me a bit more optimism. Um, but it, but it but it definitely, you know, it needs to become more the norm um, and less of, of course, you know, in the margins of society. You know, this needs to be brought to the forefront. Identifying strong students, right? Uh, one more one more concept I wanted to touch on today before we we run out of time. Honors courses, AP courses. GT, you already touched on the fact that the average classroom lacks diversity. You were the one black child in most classrooms, right? And Steve, you can weigh in. You can weigh in on this too. I I can pretty much weigh on it anecdotally. But is there fair representation and access to these AP courses? Because that could be another segue to encourage prospective students towards the education field. You have a classroom full of strong students, right? You know, you don't even have to. There's no guesswork there. If you, you know, if you're doing well in an AP course, you're, you're a pretty strong student. So th- this one, well, the answer is no. Okay, so no. Uh, do I see? Do I see that that is? Um, do Do I see that? Was there anything ever as a young kid that made made me want to be in a advanced class for any reason whatsoever? In my upbringing, the answer is no. Okay, um, and there's a lot of things that went into that, right? There are social obstacles, right? You know, not only are you on, not not only now are you the only black kid in class, you've always been, okay, that was the case, right? But now you're immersing yourself into the the most intellectually gifted of the students in all of the building, right? Um, which is a challenge enough to navigate in that space and even more so when, you know, when, when you're the sole minority, right? Um, Allegedly the most intellectually gifted students. It purported to be. Allegedly, right? You don't even know, because some kids are tracked way off and steered away from these programs um, for other reasons that we can have a whole sh- another show about, right? But aside from the social stuff, right, um, there's an economic aspect to that, right? I mean, I mean, simple as that. I mean, look, a black kid's just going to have to work harder in that space. I mean, simple as that. It's very, very, very obvious. Um, uh on average, right, African American students um, with lower socioeconomic backgrounds um, do not have the same access to the to the tutors. They do not have the same access to the resources. They don't have access to the same. For having six, especially in my, especially more in my day than anything, like even just devices. Steve Kramer, how hard was it for me to get my first freaking computer to type lessons? To type lessons when I became a teacher, nonetheless, have both have that computer when I was in school, man. And, and bless my parents. No, I mean, no doubt about it. They did whatever it took to make it work. Um, but let's just say when there was a virus on the computer, that wasn't the first priority in their lives, right? So, so like you know, so what I'm saying is, is like you know, you know, going into going into those classes, you know, having. Um, someone at a starting point a little bit ahead of you to begin with, right? It is always, always challenging, right? Um, and then then you're talking about a 15-year-old kid, again, who feels totally marginalized in the in, in the gen ed class. You know, what exactly is going to make him jump to an, an AP class with, with demographics that are even worse, right? So, you know, um, I was a student that went gen ed, the gen ed route all the way up into my senior year when I first started taking some of my classes. Um, and even then, I didn't get credit for it because you guessed it. I didn't pay for them. Yeah, my, minorities definitely 
obviously underrepresented in the AP classes. You know that the AP obviously isn't the end all be all. We have college level classes where you can get tremendous discounts on college credits in the high school, and and um, you know I try to steer a lot of kids towards those classes because they're they're economically great deal, and um, there's not the same kind of pressure passing an exam to get credit. And the AP, uh, the the AP program at this point has become rather problematic with their with the way they grade and hand out grades and things like that. So like your whole year is riding on this one grade on this one exam, which doesn't really make much sense. I mean, you're not really fostering a conducive educational, yeah. you know, the love of learning at that point you're, you're fostering. Yeah. It's, it's now it's weird. So in that, in that instance, I would say the college classes, uh, yeah. And the college classes that actually do, do a much better job of that. But, um, there, there obviously have to be resources if you're going to run a program like that, right? I, I know, you know, our our district, we've gotten tremendous grants. Kids have Google Chromebooks and stuff. So we've been able to, like, bridge some of the electronic gap. But that doesn't mean that they go home and their Wi-Fi is great, you know? Or, or as Greg, you know, I think I think the biggest point out here in Long Island is is tutors. You know, the kids up on the North Shore, every one of them's got a private tutor for every exam. You know, and the kids on the South Shore don't. And that's just across all racial demographics. You know, the kids on the South Shore are at a disadvantage when it comes to those exams. So, yeah, so funding, resources, all of those things have to be in place. But but again, districts are doing it. You know, there there are districts that are achieving it if their particular community and and administration and board of education has that sort of political will and the political pressures to make it happen. You know, I think that, you know, I, I, I didn't put in my bio a private tutor, but, but that is definitely, <laughs> that's definitely something that I do. And, you know, definitely, um, you know, helps out financially. Um, you know, there's no question about it. Um, I mean, I'm going to call it spade a spade, you know, you know, working on the North shore and having that, uh, that, that, that streamline of, of even more, Income is 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 unbelievably fruitful for a public edu- a public school educator, right? Um, but you know, you know, even but, but what I see even more is like the kids that actually and great kids, literally phenomenal kids that that you know you really have a chance to dive into a kid's brain when you're really you know you know tutoring them. Um, it's something that I feel so comfortable doing. It's something that the kids feel really comfortable doing. We do it on Zoom for heaven's sakes. I got a kid that just passed the AP with a five, get, got a five on the AP. You know, but, you know, it took a lot. I mean, it, it took a lot. I had to really fine tune every tiny little thing that the kid did um, incorrectly, correctly, emphasize certain things, work on the kid's writing, work on the kid's document analysis, multiple choice questions, really like with, like a, with a fine tooth comb, go through every single weakness and build that kid up. Like, you know, when you, this this is a service that this, this, this kid's parent is paying me to do. And it's something I take you know, you know, great pride in doing really, 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 there's a lot of responsibility to do. But and that and I think that all that goes all the way back to the meritocracy conversation we had. Is it a matter of like when you go back to those stack of hundred resumes? Because that's I don't want to say the final destination, but like you, your first job is kind of the final education destination in terms of your educational path. Right. And all the time, money and resources that got you to that point to have your, your, and with connections included with that, is that really the brightest mind in those hundred stack? Or is it just the the individual that 
had the most resources poured into them. And that could that could easily be that, right? You know, you know, resumes. I mean, clearly, resumes don't tell the tell the whole story. I mean, we all know that, you know. But um, I mean, you couldn't be more right. It's again, I go back to put the person in the classroom in front of kids and see what happens. That's the interview, you know. Um, as far as I'm concerned. You know? uh, uh, GT, this was uh, this was very insightful. I think you gave us a, a very good inside look on the experience of being a black educator, especially on, on Long Island, which uh, Mr. Kramer, you threw out some stats that it's the second most segregated place in the United States or county in the United States, something like that. I would only exacerbate that, that experience in terms of racial pitfalls or, or, or things or, or hurdles or challenges. So, uh, you know, I really want to um, thank you for coming on today and, and really sharing your insights and, and your experiences with, with us and our listeners. You know, it was it was my pleasure. Uh, this was fun. It was uh, I learned a few things. Um, hopefully, folks learn a couple of things. Um, but this is my life, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud to live it, and I'm proud of what I do, and just happy I can make an impact on these kids every day. That's it. Thanks for opening up, GT. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Oh, please, anytime, anytime, folks. Thanks for tuning in to the show. Discriminology is brought to you by Launchpad 516 Studios, executive produced by George Andriopoulos. Our theme song, Wild Ones, is licensed through Twano Beats LLC. Other music and sound effects licensed through Epidemic Sound. Discriminology is hosted with Podbean. Make sure to subscribe to this feed wherever podcasts are available and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. Follow us at discriminology underscore podcast on Instagram, at discriminology3 on Facebook and Twitter. Make sure to follow all the great podcasts produced by Launchpad 516 Studios.